Thanks for joining us for the Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Peter Singer, strategist and senior fellow at New America. And I'm Sarah Sorcher, deputy editor of Passcode, the Christian Science Monitor's new section on security and privacy in the digital age. We think the most important and most interesting part of the cybersecurity story is the people behind the keyboard. On the Cybersecurity Podcast, we'll interview key leaders and thinkers in the field, going beyond the headlines to talk about some of the most pressing trends and newest ideas. But first, we'd like to thank digital security company Jamalto for sponsoring this episode. In a few minutes, we'll hear from General Michael Hayden. He's the former director of the NSA and the CIA, and now he's outside of the government. As principal of the Chertoff Group, he's playing a huge role in the cybersecurity debate. But first, we're joined by Julie Brill, Commissioner of the Federal Trade Commission. Commissioner Brill has been described in the media as, quote, the commission's most important voice on internet privacy and data security issues, as one of the top four U.S. government players leading the data privacy debate, and also as one of the top 50 influencers in big data. Prior to her role at the FTC, she was Chief of Consumer Protection and Antitrust in my home state of North Carolina. Thanks for joining us. Well, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. It's great to see both you, Peter, and you, Sarah. Thank you for inviting me. So we're speaking now in the wake of an agreement between the U.S. and the EU to replace the Safe Harbor Agreement, which was struck down by the European Court of Justice in October. And they now have a new agreement governing transatlantic data flow called Privacy Shield. Can you walk our listeners through what Privacy Shield is and what it means for your work? Sure. Um, Privacy Shield will be, um, if it is adopted and approved and and all of that, um, a new data transfer mechanism between the U.S. and the EU that will be deemed to be adequate, that will deem to be sufficient to uphold European uh, fundamental values of privacy sufficiently to allow the data to flow. Um, I have been a big supporter of developing a new data transfer mechanism after Safe Harbor, the one of one of the older mechanisms of data flow between the U.S. and Europe was struck down. Um, it was struck down uh, in October, but even prior to that, there were lots of questions that were raised by the Europeans about the extent to which um, some of the Snowden revelations back several years ago now, uh, had an impact on data flows. They were asking questions and they wanted to see an improved data transfer mechanism as well. So this new privacy shield that was announced um, and uh, will have several more steps to go before it can be fully implemented. It was certainly a very important announcement and represents, I think, a very important bridge that will allow for data to flow more seamlessly between Europe and the United States in a way that I believe will be quite protective of Europeans' rights and probably Americans' rights as well. And so you were also recently in Brussels. And can you tell us a little bit about some key differences that you found between the Europeans' perspectives on data privacy issues and the American side during the negotiations? Maybe set up just big picture. What are the, what are the rifts and where might there now be common ground? The Europeans view privacy as a fundamental right, and they view it as a fundamental right, not just on uh, the government side, that is the government surveillance side, but also with respect to how companies use data. In the United States, we too 
have fundamental values and fundamental rights with respect to government access of data. That's what our Fourth Amendment is about. We have statutes in place that deal with um, implementing those rights in terms of government access. And we've had a lot of conversation here in the United States trying to improve and deal with the proportionality of national security use of data. That's what the USA Freedom Act was about, and that's what the president um, implemented with a policy directive back a year or two ago. So we've been thinking very hard about how to uh, create an appropriate balance. On the commercial side, though, in the United States, we don't view privacy yet as a fundamental right. Instead, we view it more as um, a consumer protection issue. And we look at it through the lens of some very important specific laws dealing with health information, dealing with children's information, dealing with financial information, and dealing with credit reporting information. And then we have the FTC, my agency, which focuses on unfair and deceptive acts more generally. And through all of those mechanisms, and I should also mention the states have a very important role as well. They too have privacy protection laws and data protection laws. So all of these this, these different laws create a web that provides for very important protections and in some ways are actually um, more protective than what you see in Europe. Um, but, the, but it's different. It's a different framework um, than exists in Europe. I do not believe it is less, I do not believe it is less strong. In other words, without saying saying that with so many negatives, I believe that we have a strong framework in the United States. Can it be improved? Absolutely. Can the European framework be approved? improved? Absolutely. And Do you think that Europeans think that Americans have no privacy or don't care about privacy? The meme that runs around Europe is, yes, we're the Wild West of privacy. But that is, it's absolutely not true. The real problem is it's difficult to explain in a soundbite how we protect privacy. It's complicated. It's what we do is we, we, we have in our society looked for sensitive information, and that information gets protected. And other information is allowed to flow unless it's harmful to consumers or it leads to deception. And so that's a more complicated framework to explain. Plus, you have the federal um, laws and the state laws, and that adds yet another level of complexity. Do you think that Europeans' perspectives are helping drive uh, change in this country? And going forward after Privacy Shield, do you think that U.S. companies are going to feel more responsibility to, to treat personal data, all personal data, differently? It's an interesting question. I, the Privacy Shield... Um, will have more robust principles in place. Companies will be able to voluntarily sign up for it, and no one's going to force them to. But if they sign up for it, they're going to have to agree to more robust protections of data than they had under the previous data transfer mechanism, which was known as Safe Harbor. So under Privacy Shield, they will have to um, examine their data practices very closely and ensure that they're complying with it. Otherwise, there will be enforcement of their failure to comply. That enforcement will come not only from from the FTC, which has long been saying that we we are we are enforcing these data transfer mechanisms and will continue to do so, but also there will be enforcement from from the DPAs, that is the European Data Protection Authorities. I am very hopeful that as more and more companies sign up for Privacy Shield, they will see that they can, in fact, be more protective of Americans privacy. Um, I've been a supporter of baseline privacy legislation. And um, this could be the beginning of a recognition that, yes, we too in America can have 
you know, a more broad-based law dealing with data in all areas, not just in the silos that we have identified as, as creating um, potential harm to consumers. So you've twice brought up the states, not the European states, but the various American states. How does the existence of different state data privacy laws impact your work? And how do you think maybe American consumers' attitudes and at the state legislature level, how are, how are their attitudes changing here? The states have um, quite an active role that they're playing with respect to bri- privacy and data security. She says with a smile for those that can't see. I <laughs> well, I smile because it's often not discussed here in Washington, um, or it's kind of like, oh yeah, and then there are the states, and it's this black box that people don't know that much about, but I happen to know a lot about it. Um, so this, if it, if it weren't for the states, we probably wouldn't have as great an understanding as we do here in the United States about data security issues. It's the states that have enacted laws that require um, companies to notify consumers as well as well as regulators sometimes about data breaches. So those data breach notification laws have been extremely influential in terms of driving our work at the FTC as well as other individuals' work, other agencies' work around data security issues. Indeed, one of the interesting things since we were just talking about Europe, Europe is now implementing a new data law. Again, there were improvements that they needed as well. They have adopted this notion of data breach notification, which they've borrowed from the United States at the state level. That's how significant that work has been. States have also enacted laws dealing with all sorts of privacy issues, everything from um, student privacy. Uh, States have been very active in terms of student student privacy, particularly California, but other states are now following on. Um, They've been very active in terms of social security number usage um, and when it can be used, when it can't be used, looking at social media and when employers can look at social media accounts and when they can't. So the states have been quite active and um, I believe will continue to be active, particularly to the extent that some um, state legislatures believe that the federal government is not being active enough. So it's interesting, too, because in the U.S., you do see some pretty pervasive concerns that people at least express about their privacy. And you have a few studies, but one of them recently by the data privacy company Trustee and the National Cybersecurity Alliance uh, held in for Data Privacy Day talked about some um, how 89% of people that they surveyed said that they wouldn't actually go to companies that didn't they didn't feel adequately protected their data. And um, actually, some of them felt that 70% of the respondents said that understanding the company's data collection practices was so important that it, they were more concerned about that than losing their primary source of income, which we found to be a very uh, interesting finding. Are you surprised by this? And um, what do you make about people's growing concerns about how their data is being handled here at home? I'm not surprised entirely by it. I'm a little surprised about the income issue. Um, I I, I do think people are caring much more about privacy. I think that there's been a paradigm shift, to to be honest with you, in our society, um, brought on in part by the Snowden revelations, but also just brought on in part by um, consumers being more and more online and being more and more interactive and and being um, concerned about what may be happening to their data. Um, I, I know there's also this meme 
uh, second time I've used that word, um, that consumers don't do anything about it. They, they talk about it, but they don't do anything. That's actually not true. And the best example of that is in the ad blocking area. You know, you look at what's happening in what I call the ad blocking wars. Number one apps in the app stores are ad blocking tools that have been developed for consumers. And the ad tech community is getting deeply concerned about this. I have given a number of speeches and talked to them to say, look, you need to treat consumers right. Consumers will be able to take things into their own hands. They will stop interacting with websites. You found 89% won't visit a company or a website if they think their data isn't being protected. That's what the industry in various sectors will be facing unless they start respecting consumers more, giving them more usable tools. If they don't give them the usable tools, consumers will will find those tools or they will be developed for them by others, as is happening with ad blocking. So yes, I see the consumers in the United States care deeply about this. And again, going back to your question about Europe, all of this is true here and explaining this to Europeans has been almost a full-time job for me. I mean, I do have a full-time job, but I have spent a lot of time trying to explain all of this to the Europeans, and it's complicated. So it's something that, you know, not only I, but others need to focus on more and more. How do you, when you're wrestling with these issues of, of trade and privacy, and how do you weigh in differing consumer attitudes. So you use the example of, of ad blocking. That in many ways, though, is sort of the um, vanguard of it. You're more likely to be hunting in the apps for that if you are tech savvy, as opposed to, and you know, my mom uh, will admit this, she's not out there hunting for ad blockers. She's more in the set, which, you know, in the survey that Sarah was referencing, uh, you know, only 29% had turned off the tracking features in their smartphones. So you have, I guess what I'm getting at is when, when we talk about consumers and their attitudes, there's a difference between the tech savvy and the broader set. And yet you have to be in many ways sort of responsible for both. Absolutely. Um, that doesn't just exist in this ecosystem. You know, activist consumers versus passive consumers is also an issue around advertising and, you know, how companies communicate with consumers. There are lots and lots of issues where we see um, a heterogeneity, you know, a, a dispersion of views among consumers. Um my focus is on reasonable consumers. You know, I don't think that we can create an ecosystem in with respect to data security or privacy that is only designed for the tr the very tech savvy. Um, there are tools out them for them right now, out there for them right now, and they're using them. Um, ad blocking, I think, is a little bit less than the the very tech savvy. It's it's gotten a little bit further, which is why the advertising community is and should be concerned and should be looking at developing better tools. But let's take data security, okay? Two-factor authentication, very, very important for consumers to use this with respect to their main accounts to the extent that they can. It used to be pretty clunky. It's gotten better. It's getting better. I think it needs to be improved even more so that consumers really can uh, implement data security in a, in a usable way. Can I just give one more example? Internet of Things right? Where you're going to no longer have um, uh, 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 devices that have user interfaces. You're going to have connected pens and connected shirts. And we're going to need to be much more creative about how to provide consumers with information about how their data is being used with respect to those devices than we have been. And those, those tools can be created and are being created 
we need to make it usable for a reasonable consumer so it's not just the tech savvy. And so you mentioned, you know, the reasonable consumer, but how much responsibility will actually fall on consumers to take take this kind of action? I mean, privacy policies, for instance, a third of people in the study say that they know that they can read them, but only 16% say they actually do. That, to be honest, sounds a little high even to, to me, considering how long some of them can be. But I mean, where do you see the responsibility lines being drawn in, in the future and, and as from an FTC perspective, too? I mean, where what's the line where the FTC is going to start to get involved um, in some of these uh, some of these things, as especially as IoT and other devices are expanding and just proliferating so so greatly? We've made many policy recommendations about how industry needs to step up to the plate and uh, do much more in terms of um, privacy by design and data security by design. In other words, this can't be foisted on consumers. Um, consumers have some responsibility, but much, much more needs to be taken on by industry. Look, we all drive cars or we can drive cars, right? We don't need to know how the engine works. We don't need we don't need to make a lot of choices in order to drive safely. I mean, we need to operate the car safely, but we don't need to do a lot of things in terms of switching the, the, the engine one way or another or manipulating manipulating the brakes before we go out it drives because it's built to, it's to, the cars are designed to be safe and to be protective largely speaking data um, and websites and apps um, and companies that are using data need to look at privacy and data security in the same way they need to design much more under the hood for consumers so that it is privacy protective and data security protective, as well as the device itself being protective and not being vulnerable to hacks through, um, you know, through the device that that might be connected. So we are, we make lots and lots of policy recommendations. We've written reports about the Internet of Things. We've written reports about big data and how it can be used in harmful ways as well as beneficial ways and trying to guide industry to be much more protective of consumers when they can be, when they can build these things under the hood for consumers so that it alleviates the consumers of, consumers of the burden. One last thought I'd like to give on this particular issue. You know, consumer attention needs to be looked at as a precious resource, right? Consumers aren't going online to read privacy policies. That's why they don't read them. And also they're written in legalese and they're very difficult to read. We need to be giving, and this, these are recommendations that the FTC has given, we need to be giving consumers just-in-time notices when they're relevant to consumers, when they can make a decision because it's relevant at that moment, whether they want to download their app or whether they want to start sharing geolocation information or contact lists. Those kind of just-in-time notices are designed to protect consumers' attention because it is such a pre precious resource. That's how we need to think about privacy and data security, in my view. So you brought up the Internet of Things, and you made the parallel to automobiles. But there is a difference in that the story of safety with automobiles is something that played out literally over decades. And it's also a story that involved everything from consumer uh, advocacy and, at the other end, actual regulation laws. 
with the Internet of Things, it doesn't feel like we're going to have multiple decades to build up to it. It seems to be, you know, it's happening right now. So what do you see the FTC's role in this? You've talked about how we've issued uh, recommendations. I mean, will we see policymakers trying to regulate actually the Internet of Things? Um, and in that, how do you balance between innovation and all the things that we also want to protect like privacy? Absolutely. So yes, um, you're right. The history of cars and and ensuring that cars are relatively safe is a long and drawn out history, you know, from Ralph Nader's Unsafe at Any Speed to creating NHTSA, the National Highway Transportation Safety Agency or Administration, et cetera, et cetera. There are a lot of um, players now that are involved with ensuring that cars are safe. I don't think necessarily that we want, we certainly don't want to go through that history before we get there with data. I think we can draw lessons from what we what happened with respect to cars to trying to build these things in before we have to create a whole agency that's dealing with nothing but data flows. Um, we, we might get there someday, but you know, my job is to try to ensure that we're protecting consumers without necessarily having to do just that. So on the Internet of Things, you're right. It is a balance because there's a tremendous amount of benefit that's going to flow from the Internet of Things and from big data. You know, wh whether we're talking about health benefits, that is, you know, figuring out um, cures to diseases because we're, because people have there's much more personal personal data that's available as well as much more of that data and it can be analyzed much better now with big data tools that are out there so can we we can solve disease issues we can solve transportation issues environmental issues i mean there are lots of issues that that can really be addressed much more effectively through use of data and use of big data. But at the same time, um, some of this information can be used to harm consumers. It can be used um, to discriminate against them potentially. It can be used to segment them in ways um, that you know are arguably unfair. Um, it can also be used in terms of security problems. I alluded to this for a moment a little while ago. Devices themselves, if they're not secure, can be hacked into. There have been proofs of concept of that, um, everything from cars to medical devices. And so not only are we, do we need to now worry about the data that flows from these devices, but we need to worry about the security of the devices themselves. And that's something that comes from security and, and remembering that these data flows can actually be a vector of um, threat, you know, a threat vector into the devices. So all of this, the, all of this is something that we need to be mindful of. When we did our Internet of Things report, which we issued about now about a year ago, um, we talked about the need for data security and device security with respect to the Internet of Things to be job number one. Um, we discovered that, for instance, Hewlett-Packard had said that, um, you know, 90% of connected devices are collecting personal information or linkable information, and 70% of that information is flowing over, um, un is flowing unencrypted over networks. So the amount of unsecured data that is flowing from connected devices is enormous. We need to deal with that data hygiene problem. We need to deal with encryption to try to make these data flows safer. I th so we've kind of said at the FTC that in many ways that's job number one. And then we talked about the privacy of this information. We talked about the need to let consumers know who's receiving this information when it's unexpected. Again, 
remembering that their attention needs to be used in, as a precious resource. So when the flow of data is unexpected, when you're an, you're an app or you're a connected device, that's also going to start collecting, for instance, contact lists, address lists, or geolocation in a way that it isn't needed. You know, let consumers know about that. If, if that kind of data is flowing to third parties, let them know about that. Um, one of the things we talked about in terms of the Internet of Things, because again, this could get overwhelming, right? Every consumer is going to own in pretty soon when the Internet disappears and we're no longer dealing with the web, but we're just dealing with connected devices. Um, you know, consumers are going to own 20, 30, 40 connected devices. This will be, if it's hard for consumers to manage now, in three or four years, it could be very hard for consumers to manage. We're going to need to develop command centers where in one place a consumer can go to see where all of her connected devices are doing, how they're dealing with her data, whether they're sharing it with third parties, and to use that as a place where consumers can exercise choices about this data flow. And how did you know that you wanted to get into this space? You've had a long career protecting consumer privacy, and it just seems like a very interesting thing to have the foresight to get into and have it be evolving just so so quickly. I've been doing consumer protection and privacy work and competition enforcement for a very long time, just as you mentioned, you know, over 20 years. My first effort in the privacy area happened when I was in Vermont. I was in Vermont for the longest amount of time, North Carolina, for uh, unfortunately a fairly short amount of time because that's when President Obama called and, or not he himself, but the White House called and said, how would I like to try to become a commissioner of the FTC was shortly after I got to North Carolina. But one of the very first cases I did when I got to the Vermont Attorney General's office dealt with a credit reporting problem. It dealt with the fact that a couple of credit reporting agencies misread Vermont tax records and wrote off or wrote wrote up in the credit um, reports of many, many Vermonters that they were tax deadbeats when in fact they had paid their taxes. So this launched me on this this um, path of being concerned about the way in which data can harm consumers, but also knowing that credit reporting, when it's done right, is a very help can be a very helpful tool to consumers to get them uh, credit when they might not otherwise get it. For instance, if we didn't have credit reports, you know, it would be a handshake. It would be who you knew at banks. Now with credit reports, you know, it's a whole system that allows much more, uh, much easier flow of, of data and credit, of credit to consumers. But it's a great example of how when there's an error or when there's a problem, it can harm people. Thanks again, Julie, for joining us. In a few minutes, we'll hear from General Michael Hayden. But first, a word from our sponsor. 2015 was the year data breaches got personal. That's a key takeaway from Jamalto's recently released Breach Level Index for 2015, a global report tracking both the number of data breaches and their severity. By assigning a severity score to each breach, the index provides a comparative list of breaches distinguishing nuisances from truly impactful events. In 2015, nearly 1,700 data breaches led to over 700 million data records being compromised worldwide. The data shows that attackers targeted richly detailed and harder to remediate data held by governments and health insurers. Here's Jason Hart, Vice President and Chief Technology Officer for Data Protection at Jamalto, about what security professionals can learn from the Breach Level Index. The bad guys are going after information 
that allows them to conduct other attacks. So in previous reports, and in fact, you know, 2014, it was mainly about credit card, you know, financial data. In, two, in 2015, it's purely information that allows an attacker to gain additional information to conduct identity theft. And as we know, once the bad guys have that information, it's very hard for an organization or an individual to, you know, to, to prevent additional attacks Organizations need to sit back, look at what data should they be protecting, and consider if certain types of data was compromised in a breach, what would the effect be from a confidentiality point of view and integrity point of view? Once they've identified that data, those data assets, what are the processes and where is that data flowing? Once they've established that, then they can start applying the appropriate security controls in respect to authentication, encryption, and key management. Read the full Breach Level Index via a link on Passcode's podcast page, passcode.csmonitor.com slash podcast. Up next, we have our interview with General Michael Hayden. He's the former CIA and NSA director who's now a professor at George Mason University School of Public Policy, and he's a principal at the Chertoff Group, a global advisory firm focused on security and risk management. He's also just come out with a new book, Playing to the Edge, American Intelligence in the Age of Terror. It's based on his experiences leading during some of the most important events in modern national security. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Sarah? So tell us about the book. Was there a moment when you decided (laughs) it, you know, when it all crystallized, when it all came together that you wanted to talk about these experiences? I, I think when I left government, I always wanted to talk about them. and But I also wanted them to kind of digest, I mean, the... If I had written a book the, the first six months out, it would have been nakedly trying to defend what it was I had done uh, against some of the things that had been changed. Uh, so I, I actually consciously decided this needed time to ripen uh, before I began to write. Then after a while, you're a writer. You know, it's kind of hard to get, get started. And the longer you wait, the more difficult it is to get started. And then uh, out of the blue, I, I had a, a newspaper friend of mine who had ghosted some books come to me and say, you know, it's time you started writing. And we sat and and chatted for once or twice, got just a few things done on paper, and then he got called away to another job. And my wife turned to me and said, well, I guess it's up to you. And, and, And she said, you need to write this. And even if you don't think you need to write it for yourself, you need to write it for our grandchildren. So they have a they have a window into what it was their grandfather did and why he did it that's unfiltered by other sources. One of the themes in the book seems to be uh, the public's right to know and be safe. Right. And how would you characterize the way the, the meanings of these sure. terms, yeah. right to know and, and be, be safe. safe? How's that evolved over your career? Yeah. Um, look, On a narrowly defined professional basis, there isn't an intelligence officer in the world who wants anything he or she does ever showing up in the public domain. But you know, I'm not just an intelligence officer. I'm the citizen of a modern Western democratic republic. And and I recognize that as much as I might wish that prior condition for my narrowly defined professional task, number one, it's never going to happen. And number two, as a citizen, I probably don't want it to happen because there's a certain amount of legitimacy that even espionage needs to get 
from the informed consent of the governed. And so now, now what I've just created is rather than this black and white, don't tell them anything, or people from the fourth estate want to tell everybody everything. Uh, now I, I just recognize that this is a condition that will have to be managed, that this is a permanent gray area in, in, in which, frankly, there will be constant tension and contention over what the public needs or has a right to, to know. I, I, I did this up in Aspen a summer or two ago, and I actually said, you know, my, the sum total of Snowden, you've mentioned, is that um, he's an indicator that we, my old community, are going to have to be more transparent about what it is we do, that the political culture within which we exist has shifted. Not, not that we were wrong where we were before, you know, oversight committees, FISA court, and so on, but that now, from a lot of Americans, and Peter, not all of them were in tinfoil, all right? A lot of Americans now believe Take your hat off. <laughs> <laughs> that, that the fact that Congress may know something no longer constitutes sufficient consent of the governed. That's consent of the governors. You didn't. You, you told them, but you didn't tell me. And so, and so now, we have to be more transparent in order to get the license to do that which we were designed to do. Now, I said that at Aspen, and Mike Leiter, a good friend, former head of the National Counterterrorism Center, actually said, Mike, that's a good thought, but I want to correct you. We don't need to be transparent. We should shoot for being translucent. And that's actually a wonderful phrase, you know, translucent. You could broadly see the movement of shapes, major movements behind the glass, but you don't have the clarity to see the fine print. That's probably where we need to end up being when it comes to balance the public's right to know and be safe. I think you're right that Edward Snowden did change the tenor of this debate, and this came, of course, after you left government. And so for you personally, what did you first think when you heard by some, some way, somehow, <laughs> that the NSA metadata collection program that you helped set up were actually was about to become public? What was yeah. that moment for you? So I'm out there in San Diego on this trip where I'm writing the book on the airplane, literally. Oh, really? I'm, I'm in a hotel in La Jolla about 11 o'clock at night on the, on the West Coast, and, and I get this text message from Mark Hosenball, Mark, uh, now a reporter with Reuters, a really good intelligence beat reporter, actually a good friend. And he sends me a hyperlink to the London Guardian article on the NSA metadata program. And uh, his question was, is this crazy or what? And my only reaction, I actually put this in the book, my only reaction is, how the hell did that get out there? And I did not answer Mark's te text message. And by the next day, you know, the metadata program is out there in public knowledge. Uh, I knew a lot about it. Um, I started it. I mean, the, the first effort for the collection of metadata began three or four weeks after 9-11. What, what's the thought that goes through <laughs> your head besides, I'm not going to reply? Oh. What's the thought that goes through your head? Uh, how the hell did that get out there? True. I mean, that, that wasn't just a flippant answer, Peter. It really was a thought in my head. Because and what was we, your operating theory? Well, you know, uh, someone who was knowledgeable made it public. That it was in the narrow definition of the word a betrayal of a trust. That someone had created an unauthorized disclosure of a legitimate American secret. Now, Sarah, you, you mentioned already, you know, Snowden, public outcry, and, and, and so on. Uh, I, I would suggest to you, in, in my view, Snowden's effect, not cause, 
Okay, Snowden is flotsam and jetsam on this roiling sea of changing political consensus inside the United States. He didn't create it. He reflected it. And so Snowden, to to some people, became this figure who shall not be named. And then (laughs) to others, he was the symbol of, you know, whistleblowing and, you know, truth telling and um, holding government accountable. And we talked a little bit about Americans' reaction and the different, um, you know, the evolution of Americans' views on privacy. But what about in Europe? We just had FTC Commissioner Julie Brill on uh, the podcast who outlined Privacy Shield, the new transatlantic data agreement, and talked about European concerns about privacy, especially in the wake of Snowden. So what do you think about the relationship between the U.S. and Europe um, post-Snowden and some of the backlash that's come out of uh, some of the European uh, countries. Well, you, you know, I'm going to say something harsh here in a minute because I'm going to begin with saying, you know, I've got a lot of good friends in Europe and uh, we had great intelligence relationships with the European services and many of our deepest relationships are with our European friends and, and just not the Anglo-Saxons, all right, with a lot of them. All that said, what you just described is hypocrisy of almost biblical proportions on the part of the Europeans. I mean, you I was on Morning Joe a year or two ago. Oh, no, it was after... Um, one or another, the ugly events in, in, in Paris. It was probably after Charlie Hebdo. And the French were passing legislation. And, and Joe Scarborough says to me, so, General, this, this seems like the French are following our path. This seems to be their version of the Patriot Act. And I just started laughing. I said, oh, you got to be kidding me, Joe. What it is they're doing would never see the light of day in the American political system. And after the European Court of Justice put the king's ex on safe harbor, right, saying that that, uh, Europeans were no longer licensed or authorized to ship European personal data to be stored on American servers or servers uh, in the United States. While that was going on, the French were passing laws post the Paris attacks. The British were attempting to pass laws post the Paris attacks. And even the Germans were imposing data retention requirements on their ISPs, none of which would have ever survived in the American political process. I mean, if if you want the, the, the deep answer, Sarah, and I'll try to be very efficient here, what we are seeing here is the dysfunction of the European political organization, where questions of privacy and commerce are handled by community entities. They're handled in Brussels by the European Parliament, the European Court of Justice, where security matters remain the province of the individual nations. So you get the hand-ringers in in Brussels, right, driving concerns for privacy to the nth degree because they have no responsibility whatsoever for security. So you see it as a disconnect then. Oh, and the Europeans will tell you, it's a a horrible disconnect. Let 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 me just finish. The Europeans do what they do with regard to American espionage, because they know little to nothing about their own. Even pre-Snowden, the European parliamentarians knew more about how America spies than they know about how European nations spy, pre-Snowden. So, General, I want to urge you. But I don't feel strongly about any of this. Yeah, I'm going to tell you to, you know, please uh, stop holding back. Tell (laughs) us what you really think here. Um, One of the other areas you explore in the book is not just the buildup of fairly amazing information collection capabilities, but also the move in this period to cyber warfare. You describe in the book Stuxnet's use as uh, crossing the Rubicon moment. What do you see happening 
in cyber warfare next? Maybe to put a, a finer point on it, what would this look like in an actual conflict involving the United States where both parties have some kind of cyber warfare capability as opposed to some of the kind of ISIS cyber caliphate right, stuff? Right, right, right. And, you know, that, that's a great question and kind of a futurist question. So I should actually be asking you that question, Peter. We're here to sell you, your book, not mine. <laughs> because I know you've, you've written about it. But the, the real answer is it, it remains to be seen. Will, will states, because everyone lives in glass houses, tend to be self-deterred? in terms of what it is they might do, or at least control to what level they, they might be doing some things. Let me tell you my real fear, which is a little bit different than the question you asked, but, but it gets to the heart of my concerns. I, um, you know, Leon Panetta succeeded me at CIA, Leon, when I became the Secretary of Defense. One of the last things Leon did about the last year at the Pentagon was really focus on the cyber threat. One of the last speeches he made was up in the Hudson River on the Intrepid. The next 9-11 will be a digital 9-11. The next Pearl Harbor will be a cyber Pearl Harbor. I actually don't say that. I actually don't go that far. What I say to public audiences is something along the lines of, you know, if a near peer, let's be specific, if the Chinese are turning out the lights east of the Mississippi River, that's probably not the first thing in the president's daily brief the next morning. It is a subset of a far more serious situation. So I've kind of gotten myself into a corner now, Peter, where I don't fear that catastrophic attack by the near-peer nation state. What I'm really concerned about is that the isolated, renegade, sanctioned, nothing to lose, oh, what the hell, let's just roll the dice nation state, which is kind of a permanent definition of North Korea. Uh, I can get Iran into that box too. Imagine, if you will, the nuclear deal somehow heading south. I can even in a dark moment, get the Russians into that box if, you, if, you, if we've really upped the torque between the autocrats and the kleptocrats by the sanctions regime and, and the Russians want to reach out and poke us in the chest saying, you know, this economic warfare stuff isn't cost-free. That's what I fear. I, 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 I fear the, the kind of the, the Sony attack, maybe a little bit on steroids, uh, a little more dramatic, where that isolated state wants to reach out and demonstrate what you're doing here. Two can play the game. It's not without cost. So that that's really where my focus is at the present time. And so it's interesting you bring that up because uh, the director of national intelligence, James Clapper, was actually on the Hill just this month uh, talking about this. And um, you know, we all are familiar with his last year's assessment where he did walk back from the cyber Armageddon, cyber Pearl Harbor um, talk and more uh, emphasize the threat of low to moderate scale cyber attacks that are just going to be a consistent medium threat that has economic effects and national security effects in other ways. I mean, do you see what what would you say is our current state of cyber war with all of these? You know, we know about the espionage and we know about these things, but where where does it cross into an actual state of conflict? Yeah, and, and that's that's really a problem. I mean, no, no, I'm not dodging this question either, Sarah, but it, it's, we, you know, where's Herman Kahn when you need him, all right, who wrote on thermonuclear war and taught all of us how to think about this new class of weapons. We've, we've, we've not had a Herman Kahn come talk to us about, about cyber attack. And so we have trouble classifying it. Let me give you an example. I mentioned the Sony North America attack. So President Obama thought it was so important, and God bless him, that was the right decision, so important that he went out and had a press up on it so he could, so he could draw attention to it. I think that's absolutely correct. And then the president described it as an act of cyber vandalism. Now, I practically fell off my chair when I heard the president of the United States call that 
something the equivalent of spraying subway cars in the Bronx, all right? But then I thought, all right, smart guy, if it's not cyber vandalism, what is it? What would you call it? And Sarah, to be honest, I still haven't come up with a good name. I don't quite know how to classify it yet. It's beyond criminal. I mean, a nation state just used a cyber weapon to coerce the behavior of a North American-based corporation. It doesn't seem like common criminal activity. It's probably more than a brick shy of an act of war. And so what do we call it? It's just not you know, some semantic exercise between the, the two or three of us. Until you decide what to call it, you don't know quite what your legitimate response to it is. And that's where we are right now. And the response question is interesting, too, because you have nation states that are attacking private companies, but should private companies be able to hack back or get their stolen information? <laughs> well, I mean, where do when we I, end up? When I have this conversation with people far more technically competent than I, and I actually say, you know, I think we need to give the private sector a little more headroom, and let's put a little more active and active defense. Uh, let's let them do a little bit more beyond their own firewall. Like I said, people who know this domain better than I, on a technical basis, begin to uh, begin to hyperventilate and uh, fear we're going to turn this into some sort of digital free fire zone. But 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 Sarah, I I am serious. I am I am genuinely open. I've not concluded, but I am genuinely open to to a regime, a legal and policy regime that might be less restrictive than the one American industry currently operates under, because I am convinced despite what, what, what the president did in early February with regard to his cyber initiative, I am convinced that the government, for reasons the government can avoid, the government will be late to need in this space. We will always be behind. And therefore, in a way, in the way we have not had to do in physical space since the closing of the frontier in the 19th century, we're going to have to defend ourselves in cyberspace. Let's talk that government side. In the book, you cover the period of not just 9-11, but all the various organizations and agencies that were created in the wake of it. You know, So everything from DNI to DHS to Cyber Command. How well organized are we for cyber threats? To put it a different way, what would you change, if anything? Yeah, we, we aren't well organized at all. And, and, and before my friends in government be, be, begin to, to write or call in, uh, and it's not the government's fault. Again, the, the, this stuff is so new, and, and we're, try, we're trying to put it into old structures, Peter, that just weren't built for all this. I'll, I'll be very brief, but to give you an example, all right? Um, computer network attack using a cyber weapon to create an effect on a network, and computer network exploitation using a cyber approach in order to steal somebody's information. Technologically and operationally, they're the same thing. Okay? You cannot distinguish them, right? Legally, one comes under U.S. Code 50, the other comes under the U.S. Code 10. One comes under the Armed Services Committee, the other one comes under the Foreign Affairs or I mean, the, uh, the Intelligence Committees. Okay? Uh, one is funded by intelligence money, the other is funded by DOD. I mean, what you've got is an activity that is indistinguishable in the real world, but everything that has to do with its governance is structured in a way that tries to divide that which can't be divided. And, and so, so uh, we, we are almost at a loss for how to do this. So something bad happens, all right? Um, 
Who's got it? Federal law enforcement? Private sector? The armed forces? The American intelligence community? Department of Homeland Security? When you talk to people in government, they'll tell you, no, we've got this mapped out. Um, We've got lanes in the road. And before long, they're talking to you about some sort of committee where it all comes together. And I just would suggest to you that if, if the answer to the question is a committee, we haven't got it well organized. So speaking of organization, there's been some news lately that the NSA is planning a major reorganization that will combine the Information Assurance Directorate, the defensive arm that protects U.S. systems and information, and the to combine it with the Signals Intelligence Directorate, the offensive branch that carries out spying operations. And the NSA has long viewed its role as two-pronged. Um, and so what do you think about combining these two <clears throat> missions of the spying and then the keeping attackers yeah. out of U.S. systems? It's a great Great question. And, and Sarah, it all, 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 the reason that both of those missions are out there, and by the way, it's unusual, and I understand they're more integrating them now, but, mm-hmm. but as your question suggests, they were always out there. They were always in NSA. They were just in two different directorates. That's unusual. Most SIGINT institutions around the planet don't put the offense and defensive squad in the, in the same location, broadly inside the same box. We did we did because both of them pivot off of one primal concept, and that's vulnerability. If you have a vulnerability, you can attack. If you know a vulnerability, you can fix it and defend. So it all, all pivots around the concept of uh, vulnerability. I toyed when I had my restructuring of NSA in 2000. I toyed with putting the information assurance and the SIGINT mission in the same box and ultimately rejected it as not not being ready for prime time, that it, it just, and besides that, besides that, given what's happened in the last two to three years, there is a crying need that there be a portion of NSA that is and is seen to be completely dedicated to defending American networks. Because it's an image issue as yeah, well, right? No, that's I mean, exactly how does the this point. affect the private sector cooperation? I mean, right. that seems and, like and, such a big and question. When you, when you blend them, again, back to my point, you know, it, it was valuable to me to be able to point to a separate and distinct function. Those are the defensive guys. That's who you talk to, right? Now, all that said, I did that in 2000, 2001. With every year that went on, the offensive and defensive missions more and more converged technologically and operationally, back to the, to the earlier point that I made. So it, it might, we may have come to the point that the character of the missions now are so identical and so indistinguishable that you really begin to embrace unacceptable operational and technological costs by keeping them separate. And that begins to trump the political policy need to show them being separate. Um, and so I think Mike Rogers made the decision that, te- that the reality of technology and operations says, I gotta put them together. Now, if I were Mike or if I were advising Mike, I would say, okay, but now you need to work really hard to continue to prove your defensive credentials to the rest of the country. And so speaking of uh working really hard to to interact with, you know, maybe some skeptics on the private sector side. Um, there's the encryption issue, which I'm sure everybody <laughs> has, you know, got heard an earful from um, from some in the private sector by now. Um, and you've actually come out in favor of um, 
end-to-end encryption, which of course is meant to safeguard consumers' devices from anyone, whether it's a hacker or whether it's the government from trying to break in for, for any reason. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got to that <laughs> position and and do you think yeah. that the where's the responsibility? Is it on law enforcement intelligence if, if you come out in favor of strong encryption? So, so first of all, uh, I am not alone. Uh, Mike McConnell, who was one of my predecessors at NSA, as director there, Mike has independently come to the same conclusion. Uh, Mike Chertoff, former director of Homeland Security, independently came to the same conclusion. We actually surprised one another because we, we showed up at public events, were asked this question, answered it, and turned to one another and said, I'll be darned. You, <laughs> I didn't, didn't expect, have an email I didn't chain. Think, <laughs> I, I, I didn't think you'd have that view, but, but we all did. Um, lots of ways of thinking about it. But my bottom line is uh, American security, if you truly understand the, the, the rich, full meaning of security, American security is better served with unbreakable end-to-end encryption than it would be served with one or another front door, back door, side door, however you want to uh, describe it. Now, look, that probably imposes an unfair cost on law enforcement. And so if I were Jim Comey, I might be saying the same things that Jim Comey is, which is, I'm going to go dark here. I need to go do this. But, but you know, we, don't, we are not required to organize our entire national life around the needs of American law enforcement. I get it that it, from time to time, it will make law enforcement more difficult. But when you're looking at American security writ large, I think America is a more secure, safer place with encryption that doesn't have a door that anyone can try to exploit. Why is that viewpoint not sinking in in the political debate? Because we've got both the technical expert saying, look, I, I can't spin something out of magic. I can't come up with a magical solution. We've got someone like you coming from the intelligence national security side saying this would harm national security. And yet... The, what I hear in you know the election campaign season and the like is, well, so what? We're still going to say the same thing. It, it, it's an easier issue to kind of take an ideologically based stance on. The security argument is actually a little oblique. It's, 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 a, it's a little indirect. I mean, let me reason by analogy, Peter. 2000, uh, I'm director of NSA. The issue du jour was MTOPS million of theoretical operations per second has to do with computing power. And there were export limits on MTOPS. So I get called down to the White House for a meeting. John Podesta was chief of staff. He calls all the Bubba's in, says, you know, I got a lot, I got a lot of companies out here complaining they can't export their high-end computers. And we're starting to have our lunch being eaten now by the, in, in that case, it was the Japanese. So we're losing market share globally. Are you sure, Hayden, we should have this limit on MTOPS? I don't know, John, let me go check. So I go back to the fort. It's, and, and, and Peter, we changed our mind. We, and, and it wasn't the commercial argument, right? Or at least it wasn't directly the commercial argument. We, we went through it. I went back to the meeting and said, John, we've changed our view. Well, we don't think there should be any limits on what American industry can export in terms of just generally exporting computing power. You know, I don't want you selling anything to him. I don't want you selling anything to her. But in terms of just exporting in general, no limits. And here was our argument. Our argument was NSA, for the success of its security mission, was more dependent upon the health of the American computing industry than any transient, tactical, 
operational advantage we might enjoy against one particular adversary or another because our computer was still bigger than their computer. It was the overall health of the industry that guaranteed American security. So now to get back to the end-to-end encryption, do you really think the United States Congress is competent to legislate against the global advance of technology? And the answer to that question is pretty obvious. So even if you reject my I think we're actually more secure. Even if you reject that argument, how are you going to make that work anyway? And in the process, what you're going to do is to destroy an American industry on which American security still relies. So on multiple levels, this is actually a pretty easy question for me. And so one question we like to end on, it's the most important question of all. Uh, What depiction of cybersecurity in fiction is your favorite? (laughs) Favorite as in you love it and you reference it or you watch or read it all the time or favorite as in you love to hate it because it's just so far from reality. You, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm betraying flaws of personality here. I'm not a great fiction fiction reader. I, I get It can also be <laughs> movie, TV. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I tell the story in the book about um, Enemy of the State. Okay, the Will Smith movie, which was an omniscient, malevolent national security agency. And uh, uh, I knew I was going to be the director of NSA. I'd gotten the phone call. It hadn't been announced. So my wife and I went to the base theater at Yongsan Army Garrison in Korea, and we watched Enemy of the State. And, <laughs> you know, where, where a guy kills a senator to better his chances to become the deputy director. And my wife, I'm sinking in my seat, and my you know, my wife turns to me and kind of whispers in my ear, "What did you have to do to get this job?" <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I guess in, in general, I get it that um, our popular culture likes to paint national security institutions in a in a very dark shade. Um, I've actually been heartened. Uh, by some recent depictions that use uses mottled colors for a national security establishment, and that's up to and including homeland, and 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 things and and things of that nature. Um, so I think um, it gets back to Sarah to your question about Snowden and and the reaction to Snowden and so on. Very often, our response to these very difficult questions borders on the cartoonish, and 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 so I. I get repelled when I see this activity, this institution, this enterprise portrayed in starkly black and white simplistic terms. Um, The more you can show the complexity of American espionage, after all, doing something secret that you don't want anyone to know in the midst of a democracy. When I was director of NSA, I, uh, I was fond of saying, you know, we only need two things to be successful. We need to be powerful and we need to be secretive. And we exist inside a broad political culture that frankly distrusts only two things, power and secrecy. Well, on that note, thank you so much for joining us. We are very happy to have you. Thank you. Thank you. And again, the book is Playing to the Edge, American Intelligence in the Age of Terror. Thanks again to FTC Commissioner Julie Brill for a great conversation, and to General Michael Hayden for joining us this month, and again to Jamalto for sponsoring this episode. 
And join us next month when we interview more of cybersecurity's biggest thinkers and leaders. And please subscribe to us at New America's iTunes and SoundCloud at the Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm on Twitter at Peter W. Singer. And you can follow me at Sarah Sorcher. Sign up for Passcode at csmpasco.com. This podcast was directed by John Williams and Amanda Gaines. Talk to you in a month. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America and the Christian Science Monitor. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0, international license. Music thanks to MK2 for their songs, The Big Score, and Cold Killer. To learn more about Passcode by the Christian Science Monitor, please visit passcode.csmonitor.com. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.